Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well and have had a good start to your um, week. Well, you know, since I was on the air last, um, if I'm not mistaken, the last time when I was on the air, uh, we had not made it to Daylight Savings time. And what do you know? We are now into Daylight Savings. The only disadvantage with it being a little bit darker out earlier than um, than uh, the opposite but that's but that's okay. Uh, the most important thing is that um, regardless of whether we turn the clocks back an hour or turn the clocks an hour forward, um, you know it's uh, great to be on the air with you guys. That's the bottom line. Now, when I was on the air last um, in discussing the other side of the night about the Carpathia, the Californian, and the night the Titanic was lost, we learned about um, the Carpathia. And uh, Captain uh, Arthur uh, Rostron. In this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn about the other ship, being the Californian. Of course, I know I probably just gave it away, but then again, um, the title onto itself um, would make it very hard um, for me to avoid that. So, if we've talked about the Cal- the uh, Carpathia for the previous podcast, we will now be uh, talking about in this uh, podcast uh, segment about the Californian, her captain and crew, and a little bit about uh, the Californian's uh, captain going into 1912, and also about the um, events that lead up to um, what will uh, unfold with that uh, third ship being the famed uh, ship uh, who is uh, embarking on her maiden voyage from uh, Southampton, England, to New York. So we have a lot of ground to cover, but before uh, we begin this uh, podcast segment, I should uh, point out to you all, uh, for those of you who have been with me for some time, oh, probably about uh, two years ago it was when I was first doing pod, uh, podcasting, I had uh, talked about, um, or rather discussed, I should say, the um, Wreck of the Mighty uh, Fitz, uh, the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by um, by Michael Schumacher. This uh, coming Thursday, being November the 10th, will mark the 47th anniversary of the Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. 47 years ago was the last time a Great Lakes freighter sank in Great Lakes waters. Hard to believe that's been 47 years and no matter how sophisticated the technology has been since uh, the last time a Great Lakes freighter vessel sunk, being 47 years ago in, in uh, November of 1975, we still have to keep in mind that nature will always have the final say. No matter how sophisticated our technology is, no matter what we can do to modify the unforeseen on our end, Mother Nature will always have the final say. So it's just one of those general rules of thumb that no matter how good our systems are, Mother Nature has a mind of her own, and she will prevail. And that is something that we have to um, we have to always respect because Mother Nature is an amazing force. I'm not a meteorologist. I'm not a scientist, but I have uh, read enough uh, documentaries on not just some of the uh, Great Lakes. Um, sinkings that I have uh, talked about from uh, podcast uh, book topics, but also having uh, learned 
a great deal about Titanic's demise through not only um, books and um, uh, television documentaries, but uh, it, it just goes to show you that uh, just when you think you've learned everything about a uh, tragic incident, we really haven't. There are so many other um, factors that um, historians and uh, underwater uh, archaeologists or marine archaeologists, I should say, um, how do I say it, uh, just, you know, ship um, enthusiasts, you know, they're constantly learning about, it's more than just, oh, the ship hit an iceberg. And that's what we have come to realize, probably more so uh, in the last 20-some uh, years, or let alone 25 years. Uh, we've we've learned more, and we'll probably continue to learn more as time goes along, but it is fair to say that there was definitely more to Titanic's demise versus just uh, hitting an iceberg. But we will learn more about that as uh, time goes along in this uh, podcast segment. But uh, definitely keep in mind, folks, that uh, on uh, Thursday, November the 10th, that will mark uh, 47 years since uh, the time that the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald uh, sank along Lake Superior. She was probably about, oh, no more than 10, 15 miles from her final destination spot being Whitefish Point. But sadly, uh, Mother Nature's fury uh, took over on that night to where uh, the Fitzgerald, she was the tallest, not just the tallest ship, but the largest ship on Great Lakes waters of her time. She was about 729 feet long. Um, she might as well have been considered the Titanic of the Great Lakes. She was built in 1958, had about a 17-year lifespan, but sadly she um, perished um, out of sight. I mean, literally just out of sight. And uh, I want to say Captain Ernest McSorley's last words to... Um, Captain um, Bernie Cooper of the Arthur Anderson were that we are holding our ground. We have taken on a lot of water, but are still holding our ground to the best of our abilities. Both of these ships were probably no more than maybe about 10, 5 to 10 miles apart at best, but, but the uh, Arthur Anderson was keeping an eye on her. And sadly, um, out of um, out of radar sight, uh, the Fitzgerald uh, disappeared. So, you know, just when think when you think things are are modified, in a matter of minutes, everything is gone. Everything is lost. And as Gordon Lightfoot said in his uh, song, "The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald," does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? So the waves might come, but if the waves are so ferocious and they stay on for more than five to ten minutes it does become that of an hour or multiple hours where the wrath never lets up so anyways it's time to uh, fasten our seatbelts and get prepared to talk about the Californian this other ship to the other side of the night the Carpathia the Californian and the night the Titanic was lost by Daniel Allen Butler so our leadoff question is going to be the following were there other, or rather I should say, were there uh, ship line companies in existence whom sailed across the North Atlantic but weren't widely known by many? Yes, there were many smaller ship companies which existed from around the mid-19th century and into the uh, second half of the 20th century. 
one such liner that was not um, widely known, like White Star and Cunard, were was that of um, the Leyland line, or as some people might prefer to call it, the Leyland line, spelled L-E-Y-L-A-N-D. I'll say uh, Leyland line. How about that? Uh, the Leyland line had thrived by transporting uh, cargo versus carrying, <coughs> pardon me, uh, passengers. In the summer of 1901, the Leyland line ordered the construction of a smaller ship. So we should keep in mind, folks, that not all uh, shipping companies, while yes, they may lay out plans to design um, or to have ships of large size be built, it should be kept in mind that not all ships being built are going to be large. In other words, not every shipping company is going to have in its budget to build a Lusitania or a Mauritania or any ships that would resemble Titanic or Olympic. The Leland Line is a, was a British uh, shipping company whose line of business revolved around ownership and operation of ships. She was founded in 1873 by Frederick Richards Leland, whom bought out his employers under the firm of John Bibby Sons and Company in 1872, the year of the Bibby Partnership's uh, collapse. Under uh, Frederick's leadership, the transatlantic trade grew, and by 1882 he was one of the largest ship owners with 25 steamships operating on the Atlantic Ocean. To me, this man really struck um, gold. It seemed like no matter what he turned, what he put his hands um, on, it struck gold. He must have had a true Midas effect. But yet he was. But it sounds like that um, Mr. Frederick Richards Leland was a very uh, smart businessman. He knew where to invest, and he knew how to um, keep profits afloat. He knew uh, really where to uh, strike it, to where uh, the company would not fold. Because you know, in order to stay uh, competitive, you have to do things. Um, you have to do things uh, differently even when things are going good, as long as you know that it's going to um, have a positive end result, not just short-term, but long-term. What name would get bestowed upon for the ship that got laid down per builder's hole number 159? Well, that was the Californian. The ship was commissioned through Leland, but the work itself on the ship was done by Caledon, Shipping, an engineering company from Dundee, Scotland. Not to get off track here or anything, but, you know, sometimes I'm always intrigued about how um, villages or towns got their names, whether it's in Virginia where I live or elsewhere and in other states. And I always have to be reminded that a lot of uh, places, towns or cities, got their names from from a place in England or Scotland, Ireland. And there are uh, a couple of um, towns uh, who's in, in the United States whose names are uh, Dundee. There's uh, Dundee, Michigan, which is not too terribly far from the Michigan-Ohio line. There's Dundee, New York, uh, which is in the heart of uh, Finger Lakes uh, Wine Trail. So nonetheless, it's just um, interesting to think that um, those towns... Uh, 
per Dundee, New York, and Dundee, Michigan, could somehow be connected with Dundee, Scotland. Now, the construction of the Californian was truly seen as a milestone whose purpose sought to become a competitor amongst ships built from other shipyards. Not just ships built from other shipyards, and it's not so much the size of the ship, but really in terms of competing to say, hey, look, we may not be, we may not be building the grandest ship right here, but this ship can uh, compete with other vessels along the waters of the Atlantic Ocean in terms of not only just transporting you know, passengers, but transporting cargo and still make great revenue short and long term. The construction of the Californian was seen as just something new. She was launched on November 26th of 1901 and finished her sea trials on January the 23rd of 1902. Eight days later, folks, on January the 31st, the Californian makes her maiden voyage from Dundee, Scotland to New Orleans, Louisiana. So her maiden voyage Believe it or not, folks, lasted more than one week. It, her maiden voyage went from January 31st to March 3rd of 1902. To me, that's a very impressive uh, maiden voyage. But she really wasn't designed right away to, to uh, transport uh, passengers, although she could transport passengers. But believe it or not, folks, her um, capacity, or rather I should say means of transporting passengers, was well below 100. She could accommodate right about 47 uh, passengers, so, you know, rounded up, we're looking at close to 50 passengers at best. And as for crew members, her ship could accommodate up to 55 crew members. But the Californian itself was designed primarily to transport um, cargoes. Well, when I say cargoes, I mean, that could mean almost anything. One one commodity that the ship was primarily designed to transport was cotton. Now, the passengers that did um, travel aboard Californian had limited means for traveling on large liners. So, in other words, these uh, passengers that whom uh, either uh, do a one-time voyage across the ocean on the Californian or just so happen to be uh, frequent uh, passengers aboard this vessel... They are the type who, I guess what we might refer to as uh, middle class or lower middle class or perhaps a working class people, but they aren't going to be the type who can afford, um, who could afford the fares of a Cunard line or a White Star line. Not everybody can afford uh, that. I mean, if you're a first class, if you are a first class status, then yes, you could afford easily afford a ticket aboard uh, the White Star liner ships of like Titanic, uh, Olympic, uh, Baltic, uh, just to name a few other uh, lesser known White Star vessels. And of course, with Cunard, uh, you've got Lusitania, Mauritania, and you know even Carpathia, who, you know who may not be in the same category as Lusitania and Mauritania, but still. Uh, it's nice to know that there are uh, small that there are other companies like the Leland line with Californian whom um, whom can provide uh, passengers whom don't have the means of obtaining a uh, ticket on the large liners like Cunard and White Star with a better opportunity. 
Now, the Californian obviously is named after the state of California, but when she was um, launched in 1901 and finished her sea trials at the start of 1902, there were uh, 45 states in the Union, folks, around the time of her um, being uh, launched and when she finished her sea trials. So in 1907, which was the year that the Lusitania um, embarked on her first uh, voyage, Oklahoma was admitted to the Union in 1907, making her the 46th state, and then the same year that the uh, Titanic went out on her first maiden voyage, Arizona and New Mexico were added to the Union. So from the time after 1912 until 1959, America only has 48 states for about 47 years. So come 1959, um, Alaska and Hawaii are admitted to the Union. So it just goes to show you that we should be reminded that... Um, that even at the turn of the 20th century, we, we don't have, we're not, we're almost close to 50 states, but we aren't there just yet. So, the Californian was 447 feet long. So, she's much smaller in size compared to, say, Titanic and Lusitania and Mauritania, including uh, Carpathia. Californian had a full speed of uh, 12 knots. Passenger facilities on the Californian resembled second class, which included a smoking room on the upper starboard deck to nicely decorated uh, dining room. The cabins, believe it or not, had electric lighting. Hey, that's a nice uh, feature for the start of the 20th century. Between 1911 and early 1912, the ship got a Marconi wireless machine installed. Cyril Firmstone Evans would be the Californian's first radio operator. And I have to wonder if he will be uh, the ship's radio operator come around the time of uh, April of 1912. We might find that out here soon. I have a good feeling we probably will, but let's, um, but let's uh, keep in mind with what we got here next. Uh, was the Leland Line part of J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company? I'm sure many of you uh, probably know who J.P. Morgan was. His real name was John Pierpont Morgan. And when I think of J.P. Morgan, I think of uh, someone who was obviously very well-to-do. He made lots of money, not just like, like say, in the stock market or in terms of being a well-to-do uh, financial um, guru, uh, J.P. Morgan had so much money, I'm not sure what his overall worth was when he died, but J.P. Morgan had enough money to where he uh, took part in the railroad industry as well as the shipping industry. So in other words, he knew how to uh, invest his money, but at the same time he also knew how to keep a good chunk of his money and leaving the little guys um, out in the uh, dust. In other words... The little guys weren't always being looked after by uh, tycoons such as uh, Mr. J.P. Morgan. So the the question, the answer to the question was Leland Line part of J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company. Uh, the answer is yes. The International Mercantile Marine Company operated as a trust, or rather, I should say, a corporate trust under uh, the tutelage or a leadership of Mr. J.P. Morgan whom supported monopolizing the shipping industry. When you have a monopoly, 
isn't it fair to say that when you have a monopoly, that there is no such thing as fair competition? Or not just fair competition, but let alone a free market for in order for fair competition to be um, feasible? Well, I think it's fair to say that that answer is yes. So the monopolization discouraged equal fair competition practices. The big guys dominated above everyone uh, below. Now, it should be interesting to point out that come the start of the 20th century, right after um, William McKinley was assassinated and died in office, that's when uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, succeeded uh, President McKinley as, by becoming the new uh, president. One of the things that Theodore Roosevelt did, and of course he was known for being a progressive leader, he uh, got a nickname known as the Trust Buster. In other words, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, or I should say Theodore Roosevelt, was responsible, responsible for breaking up every monopoly that existed. He broke up the uh, railroad monopoly to where Congress enacted legislation um, under a legislator who... Um, spearheaded the efforts. It was known as the Hepburn Act, which uh, standardized and regulated the rates for um, railroads. In other words, there could be no uh, price gouging of uh, rates along the rail lines to where they had to all be at a set rate to discourage um, monopolization of where, say, a couple of companies had the upper hand over other ones to where um, there was no equal... Um, equal set uh, rates in place for uh, for passenger fares and uh, for other uh, expenses. So that's an example right there of how Theodore Roosevelt became known as the trust buster. Of course, by 1912, he's not in office anymore. But it probably is fair to say that had he been in office in 1912, he probably could have also broken the monopolization on the uh, shipping industry. But under J.P. Morgan's watch, uh, the Californian would be destined for service between uh, ports in England and the American uh, Gulf Coast. And when I think of the American Gulf Coast, I think of uh, southern cities like New Orleans, Louisiana, Mobile, Alabama, Biloxi, Mississippi. Part of the Californian's um, service would also include going into the Caribbean. In 1902, uh, the Californian was placed under, under the direction of Dominion Line, where she performed five crossings to Portland, Maine. But the end of December 1902 saw California be returned to Leland. J.P. Morgan, being the head of the International Mercantile Marine Company, had the means and the power to control shipping rates of goods and not just goods, folks, but the rate of passenger fares coming from Europe the moment those people departed the old world until their official arrival into the new world. So, in other words, there was no way for passengers to um, be able to have um, various rate options. In other words, whatever was given to them was provided to based upon uh, what J.P. Morgan himself and those who worked for him set in stone. So, you know, they're, not only are they just monopolizing the system, they are doing what's called price gouging. They are hiking up the rates so that everyone else below, that is below their status, will really bear the greater brunt of all expenses.
while J.P. Morgan and his um, close uh, inner circle of friends will be the ones reaping in the profits, not just short-term profits, long-term profits to where, to where their uh, billfolds become much bigger than everyone else's. In other words, 5% of the, um, of the people are seeing huge increases in their billfolds, where whereas 95% below are, um, are facing the greater brunt of having to uh, pay, out, um, pay out the wazoo. Now, during her first 10 years in service, how many different captains commanded uh, Californian? Four. 1911 saw Californian get her fifth captain, one whose name would forever be remembered. I would, you know, whenever we hear the phrase, one whose name would forever be remembered, of course, many of us would like to think that that's for the better. We should keep in mind that it may not always be for the better. But that man's name was Captain Stanley Lord. Stanley Lord was born on September the 13th, 1877 in Bolton, Lancashire, a major British textile center. He grew up near where Carpathia's captain, Arthur Rostron, was born. He was the youngest sibling in his family. He you know, came from a middle-class family who happened to be prosperous. At age 13, he became apprenticed to J.B. Walmsley Company, a Liverpool shipping firm. And it was also at the age of 13 he went aboard a vessel known as the Naiad out of, Liver out of Liverpool for a South American run. So can you imagine being 13 years of age and going aboard a vessel overseas, not just for pleasure purposes, folks, but for business purposes? Is it fair to say that because Britain was probably seen as one of the most superior countries in the world when it came to uh, shipping industry, that it was just in every young boy, young boy's blood to want to uh, continue on the legacy. Maybe not so much following in that of an uncle or their or a father's uh, footsteps of being out at sea, but just the thought of of perhaps seeing uh, your your life as as a career on the waters is that of serving your country. Well, it was something that wasn't to be taken for granted. And Stanley Lord obviously seized on, Stanley Lord knew right away from a very young age where he wanted to go long term. Now, in February of 1901, at the age of 23, Stanley Lord earned his master's certificate. And in May of that year, he got his extra master's degree. Prior to 1901, Lord joined West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company in 1897. And it was in the year 1900 that Leland Line bought West India and Pacific Steam Company. Lord himself stayed on, and by 1906, he received his first command. How about that? When he received his first ship command, 1906, the same year that the um, infamous uh, San Francisco earthquake occurred, that um, literally um, almost... Uh, annihilated the city because it was just so powerful. As a matter of fact, uh, real quick, uh, not to get off track, but I uh, watched a program on the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake. It was a program that uh, was featured on the Discovery Channel years ago. It was called Unsolved History about the great quake of 1906. And 
I learned a lot about that quake that I didn't know before, but what I can tell you is that uh, the city of San Francisco had been warned in the aftermath of that tragic earthquake not to rebuild the city in the same area where the epicenter of the earthquake occurred that um, that literally almost destroyed the city. But of course, um, city officials didn't heed uh, to the warnings of the government, and uh, and so therefore... Long story short, they built in the same, rebuilt in the same uh, zone, and you know I'm not trying to uh, sound negative or anything, but as uh, geologists, seismologists, uh, those who study earthquakes have said that it's not a question of if another earthquake of the same magnitude from 1906, um, from the 1906 uh, disaster hitting San Francisco again, it's not a question of if; it's a matter of when. So I'm not trying to sound negative, but uh, we should be reminded that when even when natural disasters occur, there's a reason for why they occur, and you know you need to learn from them so that you don't so that they don't uh, reoccur. Now, what was seen as the greatest aspiration for every rising or advancing officer within the British merchant marine system? What do you think would have been seen as the greatest? Um, aspiration. How about being in command of a large liner? Not just so much a large liner, but how about a transatlantic liner, which meant holding a special rank status that stood above everything else? How about, say, commanding a passenger liner going from Liverpool or Southampton, England to New York? Well, when the Titanic departed from Southampton, England to New York, and her captain being Captain Edward J. Smith, or otherwise known as E.J. Smith, he was about ready, his um, journey from uh, Southampton to New York was supposed to have been his final um, journey. He was going to be retiring. So isn't it fair to say that of course, he had. This was not the first time that he had uh, journeyed from, say, Southampton, England, to New York. But regardless of whether, let's say, it was the opposite, and it was his first uh, journey, it would have been considered the culmination or high point of professional achievement along the waters. It's one thing to go, yes, from say Liverpool to New York or Liverpool to Boston, and and that's and that's a, a big thing. But when you are commanding a passenger liner, a luxurious one, say that of a Cunard or White Star, and you're going from Liverpool or Southampton, England to New York, yeah, you've really you've really made it big time. There's just something there's something unique about certain routes that stand above all others. Now, after earning his master's and extra master's certificates, what did Stanley Lord do next come 1901? This is pretty powerful, folks, uh, because it's something that I did not know before until I read this book. And after reading about it, I shook my, my head uh, shook in disbelief, or rather I shook in I shook in pure disbelief over it, but it happened. Well, for one, he applied um, to the White Star Line. Okay, White Star Line, Titanic, Olympic. But 
Stanley Lord was advised that if he got on with White Star Line, and White Star Line did make him an offer, but he would have to start out as a third or fourth officer, which did provide the means for working his way up to becoming a second and first, um, and eventually second and first officer, and then to captain. But for Stanley Lord, this just was not to his liking. He really felt, he truly felt snubbed by the White Star Line's proposal for going as low in his eyes as offering a third and fourth officer opening. So Stanley Lord rejected it. He rejected it, flat out rejected it. It's one thing to reject something, but is it fair to say that if you reject something too uh, harsh that you might be burning a bridge? Yes. Okay, I mean, if I if I was applying to have for an officer position and I was offered somewhere between that of third and fourth officer, okay, it may not be the grandest rank, but I would have accepted it. But maybe that's just me. What might be in someone's interests may not be the same for somebody else, which is also respectable. But at the same time, not everyone can start out right away as a first or a second officer. So I would have been happy starting out as a third or fourth officer, knowing that I would still have to work my way up the ladder. To me, it would have been better than nothing. Sometimes we have to start at the... A lot of times we do have to start at the bottom to get to the top. We just can't have instant success overnight. We can't have um, something handed to us. We have to work for it. Am I saying that Stanley Lord was a spoiled brat? No. But after having read about Stanley Lord, I've come to realize, I don't want to give it away, but if he if he's acting as though he's been snubbed by the White Star Line, wouldn't it be fair to say that Stanley Lord is being a little selfish right now at this moment? Yes. To me, he's not thinking about He's not thinking about the bigger picture. He's thinking about the gratification piece of it. Okay, I get offered first or second officer. It's not going to take me long to uh, to get to that ultimate um, title of uh, being captain. But within six years after first starting out on the Leland line, Stanley Lord officially did become a captain earning 20 pounds per month with an annual bonus up to 50 pounds. <coughs> That's not too bad. The rank of captain provided Lord with what he wanted, status-wise. But serving as a captain also resulted in exerting greater control above all others serving below him. Okay, so Stanley Lord ultimately got what he wanted, and that was the rank of captain. But just because you're a captain, it doesn't always mean that there's smooth sailing on the ship itself. In other words, if you're a captain, don't you need to have a good uh, rapport with your crew below? Yes. But I think we're going to find out here shortly that that we might be um, in for some uh, distressing news. Captain Stanley Lord was one whom wasn't seen as being friendly to people around him. 
most notably the crewmen serving below. It turns out that Captain Lord was very autocratic, domineering, where he chose not to respect other people's opinions. So for Stanley Lord, it sounds like that it's either his that it's his way or the doorway. That you know, how dare you know for Stanley Lord, it could be oh how dare you, John Smith, challenge my authority. Okay, you can report to me all you want about what you saw out on the waters, but I'm going to have the final say as to whether or not we really need to pursue this. So if you're going to have that kind of relationship with your crew, it's going to um, it's not going to bode well, not just short-term, but long-term. Did a ship's master have immense powers? Yes. A captain had the authority to perform marriages at sea, issue birth and death certificates. He also had the um, power to place a crew, per crew person or passengers in chains for criminal infractions. The captain himself had the power to impose capital punishment as a means of last resort if the offense truly merited going down that road. You know, regardless of whether you're a crew person or a passenger, you better behave properly. You know, in other words, you know, captain of a ship, you know, we don't have, yes, we have a telephone, but it's not like we can just call up uh, to the nearest uh, police station and say, hey, you know, we're not too terribly far from New York, but when we get to New York, uh, make sure you uh, come aboard the ship and arrest John Smith right away. I mean, aboard the ship, I mean, yes, there would have been perhaps like the equivalent of a jail cell to hold a criminal or to hold someone who has uh, committed a serious uh, infraction. But for that time, but for the time being, the captain is the one that has to make that call. The captain is the one that has to think about uh, the safety and well-being of those uh, aboard his ship. But I also have to wonder, okay, yes, Stanley Lord may be, he may know what he's doing in terms of navigating the water, but is he really a good captain to his crew? And we've already kind of learned, we've already kind of learned something just a moment ago about how he was very hard to get along with, didn't respect other people's opinions. And I think it's going to show uh, as time goes along with regards to uh, other events that are going to unravel leading up to uh, the night of April 14th, 1912. Now, now on April 5th of 1912, where did the Californian depart from? She left Liverpool bound for Boston, Massachusetts. She was given... Um, 14, she was given 14 days to make this journey, so it's about two weeks. So we're looking at around the middle to the latter part of um, April when she is due to arrive into uh, Boston. Captain Lord on this crossing would have three officers, including one apprentice officer and a wireless operator. Now, given that the Californian was uh, a smaller ship, there would be no need for a first officer on board. So basically, you're going to have a second and a third officer and a chief officer. George Frederick Stewart would be the Californian's chief officer. And right, right behind Captain Lord uh, is where he stood. Uh, Herbert Stone was the second officer, and Charles Victor Groves was the, the Californian's third officer. 
James Gibbon was the apprentice officer and, believe it or not, folks, Mr. Cyril Fernston Evans was the wireless operator. Not only had he become Californian's first wireless operator, but by April of 1912, he is still the ship's wireless operator. Now, what I found interesting here is that there is a difference with the smaller ships and the larger vessels, and that uh, the larger vessels would have had more than one wireless operator aboard. I know Titanic had uh, two, but for the Californian, she only had one, and being that of, of Mr. Cyril uh, Evans. So the smaller ships at this time are are only going to have uh, one wireless operator aboard. Their average workday, or rather I should say the average workday for Cyril Evans would have been 16 hours. 16 hours, folks. Uh, can you imagine having that kind of a workday? But I can tell you this much, uh, Mr. Evans isn't working 16 hours straight, which is probably a good thing because, you know, he, he does need some rest. You know, he does need to have time to eat a meal. But his day would start at 5 a.m. and end around 11 p.m. The entire day um, per each hour was not spent on the set. And it should be um, worth mentioning that the wireless machine devices, were they more readily used at nighttime or were they more readily used during the day? The answer uh is the answer is the following that wireless machine devices were more readily used at night for Cyril Evans he would uh, work till midday when lunch got served uh, he took a nap until mid-afternoon and then resumed duties until 11 p.m. so he really needs to be well any wireless operator needs to be alert in every way possible but given that he's working on a smaller ship as a wireless operator, he's going to need to be more alert during the night time because at night is where he's going to probably get more communication with other ships not far by. He's also going to have to be um, vigilant with what could be out on the horizon in the distance uh, along the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Now, it should be worth noting that uh, the first eight days of Californian's journey were uneventful. So nothing really grand is going on. But despite the weather being sunny and breezy, something is happening with the weather. The weather temperature outside continues to drop as the Californian moved westward. April the 14th, 1912, wireless activity increased due to large numbers of, sh of ships reporting up-close nearby sightings of icebergs and drift ice, which came apart from existing formations, and those existing formations being pack ice. Now, there had been a mild winter up in the Arctic of 1911-1912. Uh, this uh, mild winter uh, season led to unusual amounts of ice breaking apart from the Greenland Glacier. Large volumes of drifting ice from up north meant ice fields would enter further south, something very uncommon for the time. And I'm not trying to sound political, uh, folks, but 
that seems to be becoming more of a norm now. But that's, but that's as far as I'll go on that. But you know, but let's think about it. In 1912, if you were out on the uh, North Atlantic waters and you saw ice fields coming further uh, southward, that would have been very, very uh, shocking, very uncommon, uh, very. Um, how do you call it? it? It's probably would have been considered breaking news for its time because you, it just never had happened like that before. But yet it has happened or it's happening. Now, 9 a.m. on April the 14th of 1912, Cyril Evans wrote down his first ice report warning from the Coronia, which was a Cunard, line sh Cunard liner ship. The Coronia uh, reported to the um, Californian that there were icebergs and ice field and an ice field spotted at 42 degrees north being longitude because uh, longitude lines run north and south from 49 to 51 degrees latitude west. Okay, latitude lines are running west and east. Cyril Evans took the report right away to the bridge. Okay, good thinking on his part. 11.40 a.m. on the 14th, another uh, liner reports to the Californian, this one being a Dutch liner known as the Nordam. The Nordam confirmed ice sightings in the same area, and at 1.42 p.m., the Baltic, which I'm going to say is a, a smaller white star line vessel, the Baltic, reported seeing icebergs and a large amount of field ice at 41.51 degrees longitude north, 49.9 degrees latitude west. The warnings went to the bridge. These other warnings did as well. And after 5 o'clock in the afternoon of uh, April the 14th, 1912, Californian made her first official ice sighting. Five miles to the south, three large icebergs were spotted. I can't imagine what it would have been like having spotted an iceberg. But one thing I do know is that if you spot an iceberg, you better make sure there's enough distance between your ship and the iceberg. Because what you see at the, at the top is one thing, but what we don't see is the bottom. The bottom of icebergs to be are more often than not the worst part of an iceberg because it's at the bottom of an iceberg where the greatest not only it's not so much the the depth part of it but the greatest mass of the iceberg so we could see you know from a from a top being at the top of the surface we might see 10 to 20 percent of the iceberg but we don't see the other 80 to 90 percent below at 7.30 p.m. on April the 14th of 1912, whom did Cyril Evans contact to issue an ice warning? The Titanic. Evans advised Titanic's wireless operator that three large icebergs were located five miles southward at 42.3 degrees north longitude, 49.9 degrees latitude west. After sending ice message warning to the Titanic, Operator Evans listened in on traffic pass, passing 
between other ships, which included hearing personal messages getting sent from passengers aboard Titanic. The night of April 14th was incredibly clear, with stars described as being very bright. No moon was out. Visibility was perfect. Okay, if visibility is perfect, then you would think that any ship along the waters, which we've already which we've kind of learned already so far that other ships are spotting icebergs and ice fields nearby. Now Californian has seen has seen some activity, but you would think now that any other ship that hasn't come in contact say with the Californian is going to be advised of the warnings or if they've already been advised of the warnings that they are going to take the proper action to avoid the inevitable. That's what I would like to believe, but I don't know. Sometimes history has a way of reminding us that not everyone gets the picture. Nine out of ten ships will get the bigger picture, but there's going to be one who won't. So, the seawaters are very calm, and by 10 p.m., the air temperature has gone down to 24 degrees Fahrenheit. So, the temperature has dropped uh, to below freezing. You know, freezing, you know, 32 degrees is where it it needs to be for freezing. But if it drops below the freezing point, then you know um, that it could just be a matter of time before uh, things will get uh, somewhat worse. And with the temperature dropping, that's also going to mean ice fields are going to um, move a little bit further southward. And they're going to show up in places where perhaps the ship's radar, and I'm not sure how well radar technology was in 1912, but it obviously was nothing compared to what we know today. After 10 p.m., 3rd Officer Charles Groves of the Californian spotted multiple white patches in the water straight ahead of Californian. These white patches were ice. While they were ice and it was small, but it was up close enough to where the Californian found itself entering a field of ice, a huge field of ice. So Captain Lord was smart enough to order the Californian to come to an entire stop. He preferred resolving the obstacle pertaining to the ice come the following morning. Smart decision. And it, I mean, if I was Captain Lord or any other, or captain of any other ship, I would need to do the same thing too. Don't risk it. You know, don't assume that just because you see one iceberg or one little spot of ice that if you can get around it that there's not going to be another um, set of ice or another set of um, ice drifts uh, nearby or another iceberg. Don't assume it. So after Captain Lord um, shuts the uh, ship down for the night in terms of you know docking it, well he didn't dock it like in an actual dock station but the ship was um, stopped to where um, it might as well have been the equivalent of uh, docking the ship out on the uh, open waters. But um, So at 11 p.m., Captain Lord uh, departed for the chart room, and the chart room is a room where charts can be referred to when necessary. Captain Lord left instructions for 3rd Officer Groves, which included contacting Captain Lord if anything got spotted. <coughs> now, at 11 p.m., or rather I should say quarter past 11 p.m., Officer Groves spotted a ship from the east. 
along its starboard side ten miles away. This ship's lights were brightly lit from bow to stern. At 11.30 p.m., Groves contacted Captain Lord about the ship um, that was in the distance. Grove, uh, Captain Lord had ordered Groves to uh, contact the ship by Morse lamp, but, he, uh, but Groves didn't get any reply back. At 11.40 p.m., Groves noticed the ship in, in distance suddenly stop. In other words, he didn't see um, he didn't see any more continuous movement, but it just stopped. And then all of a sudden, many of her lights went out. Captain Lord advised Cyril Evans at 11.15 p.m. to contact the Titanic and inform their wireless operators of ice field nearby. Cyril Evans spoke with Jack Phillips, one of the Titanic wireless operators, about the presence of being surrounded by um, a large ice field and how the, the Californian had stopped for the night. Well, Jack Phillips was in the middle of doing something else, folks, and he was actually paying more attention to dispatching passenger messages. Passenger messages that have no means, I mean, yes, they might be important, but but the passenger messages need to be, um, they need to be held aside. The messages that need to, that need to have more attention or they need to be um, more monitored are the ice warnings. Titanic received a total of six ice warnings on April the 14th, 1912, before uh, 1130 p.m. And I hate to tell you this, folks, but none of those warnings were taken pretty seriously. Now, when we're on the air again next, we're going to learn more about the Titanic, and we might learn more about why she was ignoring all these ice warnings. But the bottom line is that Jack Phillips, out of nowhere, responds back to Cyril Evans, and this is in quotations, folks. He says the following, Shut up! Shut up! You are jamming me! I am working Cape Race! Cyril Evans didn't mean to disturb the. He didn't mean to disturb um, Jack Phillips. He's simply trying to warn him of what lies ahead. Well, Jack Phillips didn't bother to inquire why um, Cyril Evans was contacting him. But Cyril Evans, short, right after being uh, snubbed by Jack Phillips took his headphones off and shut down his set for the night. I don't know if this is a good thing or not, folks, but hey, you know, Cyril Evans does need rest. I mean, he's put in 16 hours. I mean, that's a long day. And has he gone above the call of duty to warn uh, Captain Lord of, of all the other ice warnings that were given to him from other ships? Yes. Did Captain, I mean, did uh, Cyril Evans go above and beyond to warn Jack Phillips of the Titanic about the dangers with the ice field that lied ahead? Yes. So we can't fault Cyril Evans. So whom can we really fault? Well, I don't have the answer to that question at this moment, but somewhere down the road in another podcast or two, we may have to start answering those questions because... You know, the bottom line is that someone's going to emerge away as being a hero, 
and someone's going to come away emerging as a villain. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about the Titanic. Well, thank you uh, again for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but uh, you guys are the ones that have uh, made the um, made all of this possible for me uh, to continue uh, to do, which I thoroughly enjoy uh, doing uh, because... Uh, you know, yes, I know history may not always be pretty, but uh, history does need to be told regardless of event. And the most important thing is what can we learn from a particular event so that the same mistake doesn't happen again in the future. And no matter what the circumstances have been where man has been involved in something that he thinks is grand and it turns out not to be grand, there again, man has to be reminded that he is not the most powerful force on on this planet. The most powerful force lies with Mother Nature. And it might be fair to say that Mother Nature, it must be fair to say that Mother Nature might be the one that has the final say as to what will uh, unravel between the evening of April 14th and April 15th, 1912. Thank you for your time, and wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.